I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. We are at the end today. This is the second half of The Magician, and it ends with Jung's in draft form circling the word end. So it's really an opportunity for reflection, even though we have a couple more salons in which we're going to be discussing scrutinies, this third book that was in draft form. But I'm just reflecting in as I've sat in the same chair since March 22nd, we are almost at 30 full salons. To have an experience of sitting in this same space and with my windows right here to my right and some days feeling way too hot and kind of trying to, you know, get to the full hour and a half without needing to shed layers. And today I have a blanket on my lap and I'm feeling chilly. And in between there, there was so much smoke that we were all sort of choking. And, you know, so just it's an interesting experience for me of, Uh, you know, essentially being in the same spot for all of these weeks at the same time and just noticing the passage of time and the difference of experiences. It makes me think of the astrological shifts, of course, and, and the shifts of the seasons. It's just sort of been, you know, a, a little experiment for me kind of experiencing life in its consistency and its transformations all at the same time. So, So in that, we've been with Jung on this journey in which he has been doing profound deep deep dives and and deep dialogues with his inner self, of course. And and the end here is, I think, you know, sort of, I have a feeling like Jung really needed an editor for the end. um, And that (laughs) it would have been actually appropriate to end where we ended last week with the encounter with Philemon, actually that feels, Carol and I, I'd love your thoughts on this, Carol, because I think it feels to me like more of a natural end. And now we, in a way, get into this kind of gobbledygook. It's not, you know, but there's so many images all of a sudden and so much dialogue and it seems to kind of disrupt what has already been discussed. So we'll get into this together and just see what you all think about it all. Um, Carol, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I just, um, I, what I'm doing is I'm, I've pulled up here the horoscope of Jung's first dream. If we're going to talk about, about our, our recapitulation, and that for me, from an astrological point of view, the experience of, that Jung has been going through is the discovery of, of the depths and the discovery of his soul not just his personal soul, but an encounter with the plenipotential of the infinite. 
And so and just for our audio listeners, really briefly, this is October mm-hmm. 13th, 1913. This is when he had the first dream about the flood where he, that, that moved him so much that 10 days later, he resigned his position with Jung and the Institute. This is the initial event of his journey. And what I'm looking at from an astrological point of view is that the planet Jupiter in entering the sign Capricorn, which is where it has been here in our current times since November of 2019 and where it will be until winter solstice, the arc of this story begins with time itself knocking on the door of Jung's portal to the infinite. And it begins to, as he says in this chapter, pay him with images. It is beginning, he, he's opened himself up and it's flooding him. It's just, there's no mystery why the initial image is a flood. Not only that it's about the coming war in Europe and that he sees clearly that his own unconsciousness, his own, that this is such unfamiliar territory to him that is opening up to him. But he sees that the fact that it's unfamiliar territory to him is means it's unfamiliar territory to everyone, and that this is what precipitates conflict and war, that the inability to come to terms with what you don't know about yourself and the projection of it onto the field is the creation of a larger ambient experience of conflict, which will lead to World War I. So as I reflect on his initiation and that Jupiter is you know what Jupiter was Zeus in the iconography of the, of mythology. So it's the big, powerful, creative, masculine that is just thrusting Jung into his unconscious and into the infinite. What we'll see when we get to the end today is that after all these weeks that we've been together, all this time, all this incredible activity. Mercury, storytelling, Chiron, healing, Venus, love, the sun, the S-U-N sun and the S-O-N sun, the rebel and heretic and here the creative. It has all since October 13 of 1913, by the time you get to February 23rd of 1914, it's over. So it's all moved through his 12th house house and into the first. And he's, and we are tired. Mm -hmm. Something has opened in him that has involved, you know, this is a funny way to say it, but it's involved a psychic musculature that has not been used. And he's tired and he's confused. You can really feel that in these last chapters, the conflation of the anima of the core with Salome, with the serpent, with Satan, with the pregnant mother, with, you know, that, that he's, he's at this point now, now that the door is closing, and he says it, the bronze doors are closing. And he knows that something is over. And, the, and so this, the, all of this chapter, all these dialogues, are, are, you know, this rush, this rush, can I still keep going? And like I said to you, when we talked about this earlier, in his Taurus nature, all of these planets in his third house, in the writing house, Taurus, the bull, hard to start, but once started, hard to stop. 
And so he got started and that, and then he got into it. And now it's like, now it's stopping. Now it's time to stop. Now it's time to bring it to a conclusion. And you can feel the rush and the attempt in the struggle between staying open to what wants to show itself to him and his desire to impose his will and organize it all and get it down into imagery. You can feel the exhaustion in all of that. And, um, and we feel it because we're, you know, part of the reason that we've been on this journey is to, you know, have our own experience of, of this process of opening ourselves up to this process and being changed by it. I'm sitting here realizing, I mean, one thing we didn't mention in all this as well, given all these dreams and journeys and dialogues is that there's also this extraordinary synchronicity that essentially the same week that we are ending this journey through Jung's Red Book, the Black Books come into publication. You know, so I now have them beautifully. I love this set, this extraordinary set sitting behind me on my bookshelf and have been enjoying. Carol and I have both been reading through some of the Black Books and and we're going to weave some of that in today, just little bits of things that I've already found. And But it's an extraordinary thing that after over 10 years of the Red Book being published, and us diving into this synchronistically, you know, along with our quarantine, which also sort of erupted on its own. I mean, we already had that salon scheduled, but then made it public and then decided to continue with all of you since we were all in this quarantine experience. Um, that at the end of this, after almost 30 weeks, essentially the same week as when the Black Books finally come into publication. There's something just for me in this whole journey quite beautiful about that, you know? So we're still exploring what that means, but there's some really extraordinary things and we're gonna pull a little bit of that in today. So just honoring that synchronicity of all this as well. Carol, what do you think? You wanna start with Satan? Yes, sure, let's start with Satan. (laughs) One of the phrases that I was very struck by that if we summarize what has happened in this chapter, The Magician so far, remembering that Jung's soul has given him war and magic that essentially all that this is the payment and, and images, this is the payment for all of this journey. He says, overnight I became fond of serpents and I solved their riddle. <sighs> and so we begin at the image that that is at the beginning of this chapter is a you know the figure core, K-O-R-E, which is the Greek word for maiden. And when you read in the footnotes, what you see is this Arabic that's over here on the left as we stand in this apse of what's clearly a cathedral with the robed feminine under the crescent moon and this Arabic signature, which means daughter, that he begins with an invocation of the feminine. And what he says about it in the footnote is, that it's not only the feminine as an, as an entity or as a gender, but that it's the feminine as the altar and that the altar is a place of consecration and worship. But it quickly goes into a dialogue with the serpent where the serpent tells him in the spirit of being at the altar, we're gonna prepare a meal and you're gonna prepare it and you're the dish. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's a, this, I, he goes, you know, ugh. Is this my responsibility? And begins to argue with the serpent. And in the argument, she tries to bite him. And he, since he's wearing armor, she's not able to poison him. And that's where we get to Satan. 
since you brought that up, I realize in a way I wanted to skip all of that because there's so much confusion in this chapter in my mind. I mean, for me, there's this feeling that he has been peering deeply into psyche, into the living psyche. He's been doing active imagination, these extraordinary discoveries on what is going on in the subterranean realm. Like he's tapping into the aquifer, right? And each yeah. night he's bringing up a bucket of water and, and in his scholarly exploration, really assessing the water that he brings up and what is all this. And maybe sometimes he lowers it back down, right? So in this whole section, there's this feeling that he's really deeply trying to differentiate of the water, like what are the different different molecules? You know, what are the different components? And especially as you open up the black books, it's very clear that even though he's naming these things, he's still sorting it out and, and maybe would never have sorted it out because maybe you can't fully identify what the water is, right? Mm-hmm. So in this section on page, this is page 413, and that was footnote 283, he explicitly mm-hmm. is enchanting a serpent. So there's a way in which Jung is now asserting his will in a way that we really have not seen him do much in the Red Book, where he has been explicitly deferring to Psyche and deferring to what's unfolding and deferring to the images. Here, Jung is enchanting the serpent and and being quite, I don't know, there's a tone about it. You know, there's something sort of malevolent. Cock of the walk, walk. (laughs) you know. You know, my soul gave me this magic rod, and I, I can and I can enchant the serpent of it. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to. You know, he says to make her believe that she was my soul. I played a sweet magical song to make her believe yeah. that she was my soul. When she was sufficiently enchanted, I spoke to her. Right. So, in any case, <laughs> I just feel a little bit throughout all of this, as you'll see, because we're going to, you know, keep diving in, but this feeling of like, it's kind of hard to say if this is really the end of the book or like an undifferentiated mass, you know, that that needed more time. And I will say explicitly that page uh, 440 of the reader's edition um, is where the calligraphic text falls off completely, which is to say that by the time we reach page 440 in this reader and all of that content, none of that content ever got written in to the folio edition of the Red Book. You know, it just ends. It ends on a word with an ellipses. And so a lot of this chapter is entirely from the draft versions that the editors have compiled and put in here. And it's on the draft that he ends with the word end, finis. So, so again, we're just sort of feeling into this, right? We're, we're immersing, immersing ourselves in the water as well and seeing where is Jung at. But, but the fact that he's having this dialogue with this serpent and finds her kind of annoying and yet he himself enchanted her, it starts to get a little weird, you know? So here, so shall we then, now we, we get to well, Satan. Let's read, the, let's read the conversation with Satan, which begins on 420. Okay. Do, you want, do you want me to be Satan? Sure. All right. So the, the, his soul says of Jung's grasp on Satan, have you got tight hold of him? Welcome, hot thing of darkness. My soul probably pulled you up roughly. Satan says, why this noise? I protest against this violent extraction. Calm down. I didn't expect you. You can't come last of all. You seem to be the hardest part. What do you want from me? I don't need you, impertinent fellow. It's a good thing we have you. You're the liveliest thing in the whole dogma. (laughs) What concern is your prattle to me? Make it quick. I'm freezing. 
Listen, something has just happened to us. We have united the opposites. Among other things, we have bonded you with God. For God's sake, why this hopeless fuss? Why such nonsense? Please, that wasn't so stupid. This unification is an important principle. We have put a stop to never-ending quarreling, to finally free our hands for real life. Satan says, this smells of monism. I have already made note of some of these men. Special chambers have been heated for them. You're mistaken. Matters are not as rational with us as they seem to be. We have no single correct truth either. Rather, a most remarkable and strange fact has occurred. After the opposites had been united, quite unexpectedly and incomprehensibly, nothing further happened. Everything remained in place peacefully and yet completely motionless, and life turned into a complete standstill. Mm, Yes, you fools. You certainly have made a pretty mess of things. Well, your mockery is unnecessary. Our intentions were serious. Your seriousness leads us to suffer. The ordering of the beyond is shaken to its foundations. So you realize that matters are serious. I want an answer to my question. What should happen under these circumstances? We no longer know what to do. Well, it's hard to know what to do. And difficult to give advice, even if one would like to give it. You are blinded fools, a brashly impertinent people. Why didn't you stay out of trouble? How do you mean to understand the ordering of the world? Your ranting suggests that you are quite thoroughly aggrieved. Look, the Holy Trinity is taking things coolly. It seems not to dislike this innovation. Ah, The Trinity is so irrational that one can never trust its reactions. I strongly advise you not to take those symbols seriously. I thank you for this well-meant advice, but you seem to be interested. One would expect you to pass unbiased judgment on account of your proverbial intelligence. Me? Unbiased? (laughs) You can judge for yourself. If you consider this absoluteness in its completely lifeless equanimity, I think this is a really important phrase from Satan, absoluteness in its completely lifeless equanimity. You can easily discover that the state and standstill produced by your presumptuousness closely resembles the absolute. But if I counsel you, I place myself completely on your side since you too find this standstill unbearable. What? You take my side? That is strange. It's not so strange. The absolute was always adverse to the living. I am still the real master of life. That is suspicious. Your reaction is far too personal. My reaction is far from personal. I am utterly restless, quickly hurrying life. I am never contented. I'm never unperturbed. I pull everything down and hastily rebuild. I am ambition, greed for fame, lust for action. I am the fizz of new thoughts and action. The absolute is boring and vegetative. And that line for me really stands out. I am the fizz. I am the fizz of new thoughts and action. You know, this, this friction shows up. Without the devil, there is no friction. You know, there is nothing. All right. So Jung says, all right, I believe you. So just what do you advise? 
The best advice I can give you is revoke your completely harmful innovation as soon as possible. That is the union of the opposites. Mm -hmm. What would be gained by that? We'd have to start from scratch again and would infallibly reach the same conclusion a second time. What one has grasped once, one cannot intentionally not know again and undo. Your counsel is no counsel. But could you exist without divisiveness and disunity? You have to get worked up about something, represent a party, overcome opposites if you want to live. <laughs> Jung says, that does not help. We also see each other in the opposite. We have grown tired of this game. And so with life. It seems to me that it depends on what you call life. Your notion of life has to do with climbing up and tearing down with assertion and doubt with impatient dragging around, with hasty desire. You lack the absolute and its forbearing patience. Quite right. My life bubbles and foams and stirs up turbulent waves. It consists of seizing and throwing away ardent wishing and restlessness. That is life, isn't it? But the absolute also lives. That is no life. It is a standstill, or as good as a standstill, or rather, it lives interminably slowly and wastes thousands of years, just like the miserable condition that you have created. You enlighten me. You are personal life. But the apparent standstill is the forbearing life of eternity, the life of divinity. This time you have counseled me well. I will let you go. Farewell. Satan crawls deftly like a mole back into his hole again. And Jung says, I thank you, serpent, for hauling up the right one for me. Because he's the serpent has brought Satan up for this dialogue. After the serpent tries to bite him and Jung's anima is kicking him in the shins, uh, she says, okay, here, try this. And so Satan is, has brought up this conversation, which, of course, leads in the next section, which you know, it, it's really interesting to me, the introduction of the Kabiri and this idea where Jung, again, is recapitulating the dive into the unconscious that results in the building, the gnomic building from the masters of the underworld into a tower in the upper world. And it's really interesting to me, speaking of trying to cobble everything together and bringing everything together at the end, that he surfaces this old mythology from the Aegean Sea that's really repeated in all the Norse myths of the gnomes that live under the surface of the world and that have all of the elements of building at their disposal and that Jung is then able to build his tower of isolation. And, and literally, I think this is a part of the tower at Bollingen, you know, of yeah. him literally beginning to construct the, the tower in which it's not a tower to the absolute, but it's definitely the tower and the power because the, the, the Kabiri give him a sword to cut the knots of difficulty. So this whole next section as a result of the conversation with Satan, take him into this construction that then sets him up for the next conversations with his soul and the serpent. Mm -hmm. There is an image and I, I wish I, I unfortunately don't recall the number right now. It may, I think it was earlier in the book, but the image in which the figure is pouring water down on the flowers that are coming up from the mud. And you can yeah. see in that image, the Kabiri are sitting on those flowers that are, that are coming up from the mud. But that was earlier on. So again, just the sense of kind of the way that this book was constructed as well. 
you know, it's constructed in slightly different uh, dates and, and forms. Um, but I agree also the Bollingen Tower, no question, really is an outgrowth of the Red Book and this whole journey he's on. He's putting it into physical form in the world and letting the Kabiri help him do that. There's a line on 434. It says, his life is beautiful and rich since he is himself. And he says down below, now that I had found this beauty in, with, in me and with me, I spoke to my serpent. So again, here his serpent is. Uh, yeah. This feels to me like, and it kind of skips over this whole section of, of the Kabiri and, and a number of other things, but it feels like it links us back to that section with Satan, where what yeah. he's discovering is this, you know, this conflict is when we are not living life in its truest form. Like when we are just living out the repetition of the personal unconscious or the patterns or the trauma patterns, but we're not engaged with soul and psyche and living you know, then that's where the conflict is. He says Satan is is personal life, not the eternity, not the everything. And that if we yeah. can rest into the everything, there's a different quality. Life is beautiful and rich. He says life is beautiful and rich since he is himself, is living true existence. For me, the emphasis on this, which is not explicitly stated, but it's very much about healing. Yeah. And that Jung in his dialogue with Satan and really throughout the whole book of world building, he says at one point to the serpent and says it to Satan, but I have to live, I have to breathe. And they both say to him, it doesn't come from making absolutes. It doesn't come from effort and will. It doesn't come from intention, but it doesn't come from abdication of life either. And I think about the Chinese concept of Wu Wei, which is doing without intention is really the wrong word. It's how do you stay in completely open and flexible in the moment to what life offers? So it's interesting that Jung's constantly going back and forth between the world building, which has a kind of finiteness, containment, and specificity to it, in order to remain open and flexible and alive and breathing. And so as a metaphor for how, how do we conduct ourselves and that the reconciliation of the opposites isn't about stasis and non-life, it's about the finding a place to stand in which you are strong enough and built enough that you are able to move with whatever it is that's current. And, you know, it's really, after I did the, you know, our Age of Aquarius conversation, it brings me back to that conversation that in the collective, here we are at the opposites, we're standing in extraordinary polarities these days. And that an old way of thinking about the resolution of the polarities is some kind of perfected static state, but that isn't what we're after either. I mean, as I contemplate what in my own soul is opposite and difficult? And you and I had this conversation this morning. Can I love QAnon and Trump and, and camps at the border? What in my soul, what in the darkness of my soul do I have to come to terms with? Because it doesn't exist out only out there. And for Jung, to wrestle with it in terms of, of the feminine and the devil and the snake and the mother for his time and for what was going on in his time, 
I, I think, what is this for me? What is my task yeah. in the reconciliation of opposites and the return of the projection of what I can't own about myself mm -hmm. to build something strong enough to, that is alive enough to live with the, with the reality of that. And so this whole section really struck me. Mm -hmm. I, I, have, I have come back to it again and again. Yeah, he really is putting a fine point on that issue of the opposites throughout this. Yeah. And, and that if we exist in projection, we're not truly living our own existence. We're mm -hmm. not living our own life. We are living mm -hmm. through our reactions and perceptions, typically wrong of other people. Through the absolute, that there is a way that things ought to be. And that if we could just get that, if we could just get it fixed... If we could fix the absolute, the ideal, then somehow we wouldn't have to come to terms with what actually is. And that's, and that's why Satan laughs at him. It's not just that Satan's more interesting or freezing his ass off in the upper world. It's that it's Jung's soul looking at him and saying, you know, this is a challenge. How are you going to, you can't live in your absolutes. You have to live, live life. And then later in this chapter, when he becomes pregnant with his, with his, the king giving birth to his son, killing his son, and then bringing his son back to life, you know, you you really feel the struggle of and and talks about being pregnant. A man talking about being pregnant, which is Jupiter. Jupiter was Zeus was the first god to bear his own child, which is why it's interesting to me astrologically that it's Jupiter that goes through the twelfth house is. How, you know, your creative life, not just world making, not just resolution of opposites into some absolute that holds still, but a strong enough container to hold the intensity and passion of, of con contemporary life. And it's no different for us now than it was for you and then. It's just a different set of polarities. Mm -hmm. Let's read on page 434 as this little section, and it, and it leads up to Elijah and Salome. So there's kind of yeah. this, this whole progression here. As Jung is wrapping up this journey um, and wrapping up the transcription, he's really getting a sense of, okay, what was that part of my existence? You know, and for Jung, that's the midlife journey. And then what comes next into the second half of life? And I think he's teeing up all of his psychology and his understanding which again, I quibble with a bit in these times as the world has transformed enormously and gender roles have transformed enormously and, and heteronormativity has transformed. But that for Jung, this became a really clear thing that there was sort of life before the midlife crisis and then there was life afterwards. And I think he's speaking to that a bit here. So let's read this and just see what he says. I'll be the serpent. And Jung says, now that I had found, we're reading on page 434 in the reader's edition, Jung says, now that I had found the beauty in me and with myself, I spoke to my serpent. I look back as onto a work that has been accomplished. And I, the serpent, say, nothing is accomplished yet. Jung says, what do you mean not accomplished? This is only the beginning. I think you are lying. Whom are you quarreling with? Do you know better? I know nothing, but I'd already gotten used to the idea that we had reached a goal, at least a temporary one. If even the dead are about to become extinct, what else is going to happen? But then the living must first begin to live. This remark could certainly be deeply meaningful, but it seems to be nothing but a joke. 
you're getting impertinent. I'm not joking. Life has yet to begin. What do you mean by life? I say, life has yet to begin. Didn't you feel empty today? Do you call that life? What you say is true, but I try to put as good a face as I can on everything and to settle for things. That might be quite comfortable, but you really ought to make much higher demands. So again, I just want to pause here because I think this, I just have this felt sense of him you know, he's going about his daily life. He's seeing patients. He's doing his thing. He comes back in the evening and he has a dialogue with his soul. And there's really a sense here that he is acknowledging that maybe this sort of general fatigue or patina of dissatisfaction with existence is no longer what he understands life to be. That he's really, and for me, this is pulling back patriarchal norms where to live doesn't just mean to carry on or to make good. It means to actually deeply connect with a kind of vibrancy that I think most of us were taught in some way wasn't acceptable in our culture. So he's tearing that away and his soul is saying, You've actually this is actually just the beginning now. You've done this deep dive and now you need to pull this forward into your existence in some in some form. But so, you can see yeah. why he locked it away. You can see why he wanted this work locked away. Uh-huh. You know, that, 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 that the explosion of the psychic content in all of its manifestations and in his lived life is that, you know, it, it's a gold mine, but it's also flies in the face of everything in the world that he's operating in. You know, at first I didn't really get it. Why, well, why did he have it buried in a Swiss vault somewhere? But the deeper that we've got into it and, and the more that you see conversations like this, it's like the mad woman in the attic, you know. I think about, you know, Mary Watkins says, in our culture, the only people that have permission to listen to their voices are artists and crazy people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, certainly from an astrological point of view, we're full of voices, you know, and certainly from a Jungian point of view, we're full of voices, but not but at the this, turn. Of but the this was that moment, right? This yeah. was both feeling crazy and suddenly like an artist, and he wanted to yeah. reject both. So, yeah, so his soul is really pushing him here. You know, I mean, it's in the form of the serpent. Again, all through this book, 321, an important little footnote, which shows up consistently, is he's called this his serpent. But in Black Books 4, which we now beautifully have access to, it's referred to as his soul. And again, if once you open up the Black Books, quite a lot is, is referenced to his soul. And so part of my own felt sense as reading this, that the feminine starts to kind of disappear, the soul sort of seems to disappear in ways and all these other figures come forth as he's differentiating what that soul material is. Is it God? Is it the serpent? Whatever. But you see it's kind of changes a bit, right? Yeah. So so his soul here, this serpent is trying to indicate to him, actually, your life is just beginning. Yeah. So then we get into this very weird stuff with Elijah and Salome. And, and this is a whole nother kind of meaty section that, that I want to just open up a little bit with the Black Books. Because, again, the reason I think Jung needed an editor at this point, I mean, often at times through the Red Book, we've all felt that, I think, like, what's really going on here? But in these sections that Carol and I have pulled forward, I think there's tremendous meat and juice, and we can still see this union of the opposites and, and Jung coming forward with his um, understanding of psychology and, and world making and all that. But in the next sections, he's like flippantly rejecting of both Salome and Elijah and also Philemon. And again, you just get this feeling that he's, um, 
he's in a different state. You know, he's now trying to sort of figure out how to leave home sort of, it's like he was in deference to his parents in the inner world. And now he's sort of in this adolescent phase or something rejecting and being cranky and annoyed. So shall we read this section now on with Elijah yes. and Salome? Yes. So we're on page 435. Elijah and Salome, Jung writes, the cycle is completed and the gates of the mysteries have opened again. Elijah leads Salome, the seeing one, by the hand. So we need to pause here. She was blind at the beginning, right? In the Mysterium encounters, Salome was blind. Uh, you also, we saw that earlier, the serpent um, their eyes can't be seen, her eyes can't be seen. So you all through this book, there's this quality of blindness and seeing. So Salome was blind during Mysterium encounters and now the gates have opened to the mystery again. She blushes and lowers her eyes. <laughs> this really got me while lovingly batting her eyelids. Yeah. Here, I'll be Elijah. Here, I give you Salome. May she be yours. For God's sake, what should I do with Salome? I am already married and we are not among the Turks, i.e. we are not polygamists. <laughs> you helpless man, how ponderous you are. Is this not a beautiful gift? Is her healing not your doing? Won't you accept her love as the well-deserved payment for your trouble? It seems to me rather a strange gift, more burden than joy. I am happy that Salome is thankful to me and loves me. I love her too, somewhat. Incidentally, the care I afforded her was literally pressed out of me, rather than something I gave freely and intentionally. If my partly unintentional ordeal has had such a good outcome, I'm already completely satisfied. And then Salome says to Elijah, leave him. He is a strange man. Heaven knows what his, his motives are, but he seems to be serious. She says, I'm not ugly and surely I'm generally desirable. Uh, and then Salome says to Jung, why do you refuse me? I want to be your maid and serve you. I will sing and dance before you, fend off people for you, comfort you when you are sad, laugh with you when you are happy. I will carry all your thoughts in my heart. I will kiss the words that you speak to me. I will pick roses for you each day and all my thoughts will wait upon you and surround you. And Jung says, I thank you for your love. It is beautiful to hear you speak of love. It is music and old, far-off homesickness. Look, my tears are falling because of your good words. I want to kneel before you and kiss your hands a hundred times because they want to give me love. You speak so beautifully of love. One can never hear enough of love being spoken. Why only speak? I want to be yours, utterly and completely yours. Jung says, you are like the serpent that coiled around me and pressed out my blood. Your sweet words wind around me and I stand like someone crucified. I want to show this image while we're here. This is what this passage brought up for me. The serpent that surrounds him. This is on the Sistine Chapel. And this is the Garden of Eden. And here we have Adam and Eve, and here's Eve taking the apple from the serpent coiled around the snake, which has the face of Lilith. And I think it's such a, you know, this is Michelangelo at the peak of his powers in the, you know, the, the, the pay of the papacy. And so we have the enshrinement of the feminine as serpent in at least one religious tradition, 
which is certainly the religious tradition that has informed Jung. And I, as, as I saw these words, your sweet words wind around me and I stand like someone crucified, it really brought up this, uh, why it's conflated for him in the way that it's conflated, but also not only Satan, serpent, woman, but soul and vitality and a connection with things beyond the material world. So So this passage that shows up at the beginning of 437, when Jung says then to Salome, listen, I doubt that it is your destiny to belong to me. I do not want to intervene in your utterly singular life since I can never help you to lead it to an end. And what do you gain if one day I must lay you aside like a worn garment? And she says, appropriately, your words are terrible, but I love you so much that I could also lay myself aside when your time has come. And he says, I know that it would be the greatest torment for me to let you go away. But if you can do this for me, I can also do it for you. I would go on without lament, since I have not forgotten the dream where I saw my body lying on sharp needles and a bronze wheel rolling over my breast, crushing it. I must think of this dream whenever I think of love. If it must be, I am ready. I don't want such a sacrifice. I want to bring you joy. Can I not be joy to you? So as I dove into the black books, we have always known in the history of the red book, anyone who's kind of curious about the actual history of Jung's life, right? That, that Tony Wolf has been a figure as we've spoken about in the background for this whole journey and most of Jung's work. And so part of the intrigue about the black books coming out is how much does Tony show up and, and where does she show up and how much does he write about her? And also that Sonu Shamdasani, the editor of the red book had access to her journals and so is able to weave in some of her words through this. And so again, I've just scratched the surface of this, but part of scratching the surface, it becomes deeply clear to me that in, in this end of the journey, as Jung is trying to kind of get Salome to go away, that there's almost verbatim lines in relation to Tony that he's trying to get Tony to go away. And yet, and he, I want to be really kind of careful about this conflict with him because um you know, he, he and Tony are both, and I think Emma Jung, right? And again, this shows up in certain lines, both in the introduction and, and in the text and in the black books, that Tony was a massively important figure in Jung's work. That in fact, they both use the word sort of, she gave him her world and he took her world and transformed it into psychology and then gets sort of overwhelmed by her and annoyed by her because in fact, she's not his wife. So then this is a young woman who does not have her own family, her own husband, her own world, her own scholarship, her own platform, her own professional platform. Jung has a professional platform, which suddenly starts to take off because of all of this work. He has a wife and children. He has a home. And so they're then in this very complicated situation where she is becoming listless and depressed and neurotic and anxious and frustrated. And he is kind of carrying on with his life, you know? So 
if if you do have the black books, part of this shows up in in black book one, which is actually this whole um, this is kind of a complicated thing. But in the in the production of the black books, the first black book is all of Sonu Shamdasani's editorial work and a long introduction, because the first black book, I believe, is mostly Jung's explorations as a child, and he then sort of picks it up. So they start with black book two and carry on. So you know, let's see, there's just a little bit here on on page 97 of Black Book One here. Uh, he says in in a dedicated copy that Jung gave to Tony Wolf, the copy of his book, Psychological Types that he gave to her. He says this book, as you know, has come to me from that world which you have brought to me. Only you know out of which misery it was born and in which spirit it was written. I put it in your hands as a sign of gratitude, which I cannot express through words. And there's more exploration here. On page 95, Jung writes in his Black Books on January 5th, 1922, Jung's soul advised as follows. This is a dialogue with his soul. And this is in Black Book 7, where a lot of this really fascinating material shows up. He says, "You should." the soul says, you should not break up a marriage, namely the marriage with me. No person should supplant me, least of all Tony. I want to rule alone. And the following day, she adds, you must let Tony go until she has found herself and is no longer a burden to you. So that line, you must let Tony go, go. Um, until she has found herself and is no longer a burden to you, feels very deeply like this wrestling that Jung is doing here with Salome. You know, listen, he says to her, I doubt that it is your destiny to belong to me. I do not want to intervene in your utterly singular life since I can never help you lead it to an end. So he's he's caught in this in this whole situation where he is in one level really deeply, I think both with Tony and with his feminine soul, and with, you know, he had a number of complicated encounters with women. He's both deeply trying to help them to live their own existence, and he's deeply caught in the fact that he has a powerful role in society that they do not have, and so he can actualize his existence in a way that they can't, and so they become brooding and neurotic and frustrated and anguished, whereas he kind of feels free to move on into the world and publish and become young. So it's just this, you know, I don't know that there's any way to separate Jung's existence from culture at the time. I mean, speaking of our upcoming election, you know, my understanding is that women did not have the right to vote in Switzerland until the 1970s, which feels mind blowing for me to say that. But, you know, they they were not um, empowered in quite a number of ways in in society, professionally, politically, socially, on and on. So, so there's just this constant dance going on that we can feel in this text and really comes through in the history. It also really explains, thank you, Satya. It really explains to me that in this dialogue with Salome, when he has been given a crown and he's hanging, you know, the image of the hanged man in the tarot, and he says, um, a hanged king would like to change places with every blessed beggar on the country road who has not been hanged. And you, he's hanging, he's between, he's, he's in the betweenness place of, of what you just described and where he's going to go. And she says to him, hang until you understand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then he, it leads to his tirade against Philemon. 
mm-hmm. a tirade, you know, where he calls him a fraud and a jokester and what have you brought me to, which then brings him to the conception of the sun, the serpent story about the sun and, and Jung's understanding of the life being born from love. The uh, coming back to the feminine after hanging and clearly having made some kind of decision about how he's going to go on with his life mm-hmm. that to come back. And then he says at the end, now shut you bronze doors. I opened to the flood of devastation and murder brooding over the peoples opened. So as to midwife, the God shut may mountains bury you and seas flow over you. And it ends with him as a pitiful figure contemplating agelessness rooted in the Middle Ages. Let's read that section. Last. Carol, do you want to maybe make a little commentary on this that you were thinking about? And then we can read it just ceremonially, ceremonially as we end here. Well, it's that Jung has come to the end, you know, and still has to live. You know, after all of this, he's had to create the tower, he's had to create the body, he's had to create the container of of how to live his life and how to grow his garden and how to be in the world in his way and that something's over. Mm -hmm. And and he's alone. Mm -hmm. Well, let's read. Okay. I came to myself, a giddy and pitiful figure, my I. I didn't want this fellow as my companion. I found myself with him. I prefer a bad woman or a wayward hound, but one's own eye, this horrifies me. An opus is needed that one can squander decades on and do it out of necessity. I must catch up with a piece of the Middle Ages within myself. This is interesting to me because 1220 was, an, you know, essentially the last time that, that in, in a great astrological age in terms of Saturn and Jupiter and Aquarius, 1220 is the time, is a significant time in the way this is an echo of 800 years ago. So he, this is, I think, part of what he's talking about. We have only finished the Middle Ages of others. I must begin early in that period when the hermits died out. Asceticism. Inquisition, torture are close at hand and impose themselves. The barbarian requires barbaric means of education. My, I, you are a barbarian. I want to live with you. Therefore, I will carry you through an utterly medieval hell, catabasis, really, until you are capable of making living with you bearable. You should be the vessel and womb of life, therefore I shall purify you. The touchstone is being alone with oneself. This is the way. I'm just going to read those two last lines because they feel like such critical last lines. Mm -hmm. The touchstone is being alone with oneself. This is the way. And then in the draft, he has end circled. For more, please visit salomeinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. 
to Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes, to Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music, and to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.